from the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Welcome to the Discover Policing Podcast. I'm Joseph Marcus. Each community is different, each department is different, but at the end of the day, we all are going through the same issues. Three main goals would be protecting the officers, protecting the public, and evidentiary purposes. Body-worn camera footage, it's not a panacea. They're not drone cameras with a 360-degree view. This episode is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS Office, and the department's full disclaimer notice is available at the end of the podcast and in the episode show notes. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the IACP or the COPS Office. On this episode of the pod, I discuss body-worn cameras with Chief Solaire of Woodland, California, and Dr. Wes Jennings from Texas State University. As you hear on the podcast, body cams have seen a meteoric rise across the country and around the world. But the research on them is still developing and mixed. But I think this episode really helps frame some of the issues around body-worn cameras that communities and law enforcement professionals have to consider. And now, my first guest, Chief Solaire from Woodland, California. Chief Solaire, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, can you quickly provide us a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into the field, and then a little bit about um, Woodland, California? Absolutely. So I've been in the, in the business of law enforcement for about 21 years now. Uh, my career started with Actually, my career started when I was going through college. Uh, so uh, after I graduated, I went back. I worked in the private sector for a few years, but I still had this nagging you know, desire to, to, to be in, in law enforcement. So one day I made that decision and I began my career there with the Austin Police Department. Uh, did uh, over a decade with the Austin Police Department. Uh, and then one day I decided I wanted to, to seek a different experience. So I took a position as a lieutenant um, over patrol operations in, in a suburban community. You know, I learned a lot as well as a, as a patrol commander. And then one day, uh, chief retired and I was uh, appointed the chief of police. And I was a chief of police for about four, four and a half years in, in the city of Crowley. And then after that, the opportunity opened up here in, in the city of Woodland, uh, California. Um, Woodland is uh, definitely a larger city than Crowley. Small enough that, you know, you know everybody, but large enough that we have, you know, our share of issues to deal with. And each each community is different, each department is different, but at the end of the day, we all are going through the same issues. We're going through the same challenges at the core. Um, so so it's it's interesting to see how we all face the same the same issues. And real quick, I mean, I think most of our audience is going to know what a body-worn camera is, mm-hmm. but what are body-worn cameras? What do they look like? How do they sort of function? Well, body-worn cameras is, you know, just like it sounds, it's a camera device. It's a video recording device that is uh, worn somewhere on the body of the officer. Now, they come in different sizes, shapes, and, and styles. We see ones that are worn on the chest, kind of like a little box, a little black box. Uh, we see some that are mounted on, on eyeglasses or headgear. I've even seen some that stick out of your pockets like a little pen. Um, and the ones that we have, the, the version that we have, are actually ones that interface with our handheld radios. So the body camera is also the, the microphone for the, for the radio. And, and the purpose of the body camera is obviously to record uh, interactions uh, between the officers and whomever they're interacting with. You've implemented body-worn cameras in, in a number of different departments. Um, 
what were some of your initial experiences and when and when did you decide to move forward with them and what were sort of your some of the goals um, when you implemented them? So I've implemented a total of three body cam programs uh, now in my career as a chief, uh, Woodland being one. And then in the city of Crowley, we actually had two different uh, programs that were implemented. And the reason why we had two different programs in Crowley is because, going back to your question, is there were some lessons learned. There were some lessons learned with the first deployment that, you know, um, it didn't go as planned. The body cam technology, the body cam issue was was a nascent issue. It was just coming to the big scene, partly because of Ferguson, Missouri. That was not the catalyst for me to decide to 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 start a body cam as a system. It just happens that right about the same time Ferguson took place and and then it became a big deal. The way I see it, there's three main goals why you would want to deploy a body cam um, program in your agency. First goal is to protect the officers. You know, I can tell you as a chief executive and a supervisor, and I've been in some sort of supervisor position for, for over 10 years now. And I can tell you because of body cams, a lot of these complaints that come in can be quickly addressed with a video. It's You can go out there and quickly, the supervisors can go and quickly determine, oh, there's nothing here or there is something here that we need to look further. So that's the main, main goal, protect the officer. Goal number two, equally important, is protect the citizens. Because we do know, unfortunately, like in every profession, there are some bad cops out there. You know, and hopefully we can weed those out and we want to weed those out of our profession because they have no place in our profession. But with this body cam deployment, the people are there's another layer of, of reassurance, if you will, another layer of scrutiny and accountability that we can have to protect the people. Uh, the third goal is evidentiary purposes. A lot of prosecutors and juries and judges, they really are hesitant to make a decision or a conviction if they don't see the video. And long gone are the days in which the officer's word was gold and that's it, right? Now they want to see the video. And with the advent of body cam, there is a lot of great um, footage that you can provide the courts, provide the juries, the, the, the judges, the prosecutors, and even the defense attorneys to, to be able to, to, to put that case forward and, and reach a, a decision. I guess there's two, two sort of questions on this. You're talking about collecting um, evidence and um, different departments will have different policies based on, you know, when to turn the body-worn cameras off. As I was walking around your uh, offices here, you know, I noticed you have signs sort of turn your body-worn camera on, turn it off. What are some of the policies that you've implemented? Why did you decide on those policies um, in terms of when to record? Right. And, and then each agency, once again, is going to have different expectations of, of their policies because they're built around, you know, community expectations, et cetera. Our policy here in the city of Woodland is pretty comprehensive. Um, for the most part, in a nutshell, we are we require that every call for service in which you take enforcement action or possibly can take an enforcement action, which really boils down to almost every call for service, um, you're required to have it on. You know, if for whatever reason you need to turn that camera off, there's certain safeguards out there, then you need supervisor permission, you need to document it in your report, et cetera. But for the most part, my expectation as a chief, and it, it is our policy, that if you are there interacting with the public, that camera's on. And people say, well, what if it's just, you know, someone asking you for directions? You know, turn it on. Because in my career, I've had those interactions which they start off with, hey, can you tell me how to get to X, Y, or Z, and then somehow they evolve into something else. The last thing we want is our officers to have to be worrying about 
is while they're in the middle of a heightened situation to be worried about turning their cameras on. So actually our policy suggests that mandates they be on for every calls for service, but also suggests that while you're en route to that call, turn your body camera on. That way you don't have to worry about it um, once you get there. And then again, once the enforcement action is uh, done, there's certain times that we say now it's okay to turn your body camera off. Um, and then the signs that we see is because there are always concerns for privacy. And one of the things is, you know, one of the concerns that were raised, um, you know, by people both here and other departments I've been in is like, well, how do we know those things are not recording us while we're in their locker room? So that's why we remind people when you're going into the locker room, when you go into a place which there is an expectation of privacy, such as a bathroom, we have the sign that says, turn it off. But they also, we have the obligation to remind them to turn it on. So then when they leave, there's another sign that says, turn them on. Because once again, the last thing we want is them to leave the building with them off. They get into a critical incident out there and now the camera is not on. What is your policies in terms of how often supervisors review footage, either for training, for just general performance review? Um, do they audit them on a regular basis? What does that look like? That is still an ongoing process. Like I said, we're still in nascent stages of our body cam um, deployment. Uh, here in California, obviously, there are issues that we have to discuss with labor unions. Um, this is one of the things that we got pushed back on is like, how and when are the audits going to take place or is it going to be random? Is it going to be based on suspicion? So we're still trying to fine tune those things. Obviously, when there's reasonable suspicion that something's afoot or the officer's not complying, we reserve the right to, to at that point do a full audit on that specific officer. But we're trying to work with our labor unions because, you know, once again, in California specifically, it, it, it's a more complex issue than other states um, to make sure that we have a, uh, an audit process that's very comprehensive, that is not seen as biased, that is not seen as we're trying to catch people doing bad things because that's not the purpose of it. Once again, the ultimate purpose is to protect the officer. If that means telling them, you know, you failed to turn on your camera on this call, you need to do it. That's good because once again, the last thing we want is them getting into a critical incident, an officer-involved shooting situation, a use of forcing situation, an in-custody death situation, and oh my God, the camera was not on. Not only now, there's no evidence for to present for the investigation. Now there is this distrust from the public. You know, you guys have body camera. How come it was not on? So as a chief, that's something I cannot afford to have. I cannot afford to have a body cam program and then have a call, a critical call, in which the body cams were not activated. When I was producing some training videos on, on elder abuse, you know, we were looking for um, body-worn camera footage where, where the officers did a great job. And we found a few cases. Um, and those, I think, are also, you know, they don't just necessarily have to be for punitive purposes, but they also make great training tools. Body-worn cameras have a sense of realism that I think really put officers in other officers' positions and say, oh, they did that there? Like, that was really well done. You know, I think there's other opportunities for body-worn cameras. I totally agree. And I can tell you from experience as a chief in a previous agency, you know, when we had situations that we considered to be training moments, we we made those videos available. Because once again, we don't want to criticize an officer or we don't want to embarrass any officer. But if the officer did something that could have been done better, um, obviously at least at the minimum with that specific officer, we go through the video and we go like, look, Tell me now that you're looking at this from an outsider looking in, 
what do you think you could have done better? You know, if it's something, you know, that really needs to be put out to the whole organization, like, oh, look, we found this, you know, um, we, we do that too. Or, or even when an officer does something really well. Um, I think those are really good. Uh, I agree. 100%. Was there any community expectations around the body-worn cameras, either either in Crowley or in Woodland? As far as community expectations, you know, I, I think in both communities, the body cameras uh, were welcome. Uh, I can tell you from experience here in Woodland, you know, right as I came on board, we had a, a tragic incident in which we had an in-custody death. And um, there were some questions raised about, you know, the process, you know, the reuse of force, et cetera. And I think that also helped, you know, propel this, this, this drive to get these body cameras out there because... Once again, as a chief, one of my main goals is to build that trust between the community and and, and, and the police department. So, you know, um, unfortunately, this happened, but this wasn't the reason why we implemented this. But it was also a catalyst to, to accelerate the process to be out there. I think it's almost expected by everybody. You know, um, what I suggest agencies or chiefs that are looking into implementing this, this body cam program um, I, I would just suggest that they get some input from the community um, because, once again, even though the perception is a lot of community want it, you may have a community that actually doesn't care for it or doesn't want it. You know, And at the end of the day, you have to, to value that as well in making that decision whether or not you want to proceed with this or not. You know, um, you know community expectations are important. And actually, the best critiques, the best reviews are coming from our own officers. Who, which is interesting because usually officers are the first one that resist any kind of change, including technology like body cams. Uh, like everybody else, they're suspicious at first, right? So let, let's talk a little bit about that. When you decided to start moving forward with this, how did you sort of engage in with them? It starts with getting their buy-in, you know, and uh, these key players in this are the people that are going to spread the word out to to the rest of the troops of how valuable this is, right? Part of the engagement was allowing field officers or people from from the field to be engaged in the process of actually determining which system we're going to use. We also have to educate them. You know, this is what's coming, but this is why it's coming, and this is how it's going to benefit you. Like I said, a lot of people see it as a big brother type of thing. I tell you, when, when the dash cams first came out in early 2000s, I was one of those skeptics. I was like, oh, what do we have here? You know, big brother watching us. And it, it took a complaint lodged against me and another officer and not being found. The complaint was bogus. But the reason they found the complaints to be bogus is obviously it didn't happen, but also because there was dash cam audio and video of the incident. I became a believer instantly because I saw the potential of what if that video hadn't been there? So when I tell these stories, people can relate to like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, this is a tool that's going to help them, you know, be protected in the event. Once again, there's bogus complaints or, or something goes down. We have the story. We have the whole story. So let's talk about a little bit of the vendor process. You know, I'm sure you've been to the ICP conference. Um, when you walk around the ICP conference, it is overwhelming just the sheer amount of technology and vendors that are there that are selling you some stuff. But how did you go about deciding selecting a vendor? Yes, it can be overwhelming. Your mind will be blown away with everything that's out there. First of all, you got to figure out your budget. That's going to automatically put you in certain categories. The other thing is, 
what are really you looking for? Is it just a basic camera system? Is it a system that works with other systems that you may have? Maybe you want something that integrates with your current dash cam. Um, maybe you want something that integrates with your weapons. What is what you need to effectively accomplish whatever goals you've set up for, for your body cam program? Then once you narrow that down, it boils down to functionality. You know, and this is where those testings, this is where those site visits need to happen. This is where those phone calls and emails need to take place because more than likely somebody's already using this technology. One of the lessons learned from my first iteration, which, you know, once again, I consider it failed. Uh, and I say that, you know, honestly, is we didn't do this. We didn't do the homework. Um, so we learned from that because at the end of the day, as I, as a chief can love a product, but if the people on the field hate it, why am I going to get it? Other thing is storage. Some systems have cloud storage. Some systems are specifically uh, server storage inside. What are you willing to have? That's going to put you in another category. So, so there's a host of things that you have to look into um, that will help you narrow it down. You got to ask what the service plan is because warranty is important because the work we do. You know, we're running after people. We're, we're fighting with people sometimes. We're jumping fences. Things break. <laughs> Things will break. And I can tell you, technology changes quick. You know, I don't think any product out there is going to be longer than five years on the market before a new technology takes over. And, oh, yeah, we have this brand new product. And, and then you're now kind of wondering, what do I do? Several departments are starting to sort of sunset their body worn cameras or decide not to, um, you know, move forward with the program. Um, you know, I think we kind of touched a little bit about this, but if we can talk a little bit more about some of those, uh, some of the reasons why some departments are deciding not to. So I can obviously not speak for other departments, but what I've heard talking to other chiefs, for example, there's a state, which I'm not going to name, in which... The majority of the agencies have decided voluntarily they're not going to go to a body cam program. And I asked why. And they say because of the state's public information laws are so lax that it would create a nightmare situation for them. As far as records retention, producing those records redaction, they literally will have to hire tons of people. So they decided, you know, against probably their their wishes that we're not going to have a body cam program. Another thing is cost. Is that right or wrong? It depends on the situation. The reminder that I have for everybody is you may not have a body cam, but everybody else out there has a camera. So everybody else is recording you guys. Um, I feel more comfortable as a chief executive to be able to have my own version to provide if we need to, to a court, to the media, whomever it is. Um, so to me, it's a valuable tool. That was my interview with Chief Solaire. My next guest is Dr. Wes Jennings. Dr. Jennings is a professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Texas State University. I wanted to focus my conversation with Dr. Jennings on his research and evidence from the broader academic community. You may notice some diminished sound quality as I recorded Dr. Jennings remotely from his office. Dr. Wes Jennings, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I appreciate it. I just wanted to start with some grounding questions and have you frame the conversation. Um, it seems to me that body-worn cameras have really exploded. There's been a growing conversation around uh, their use. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, that conversation and what is the general rate of adoptions of body-worn cameras? Yeah, certainly. Um, 
historically, technology has always been a part of policing, and these body-worn cameras were used sparingly in mostly small departments. Uh, we're talking within the last, you know, 10 years ago, and there wasn't much public knowledge of body-worn cameras, but essentially the, the momentum that, that geared body-worn cameras to the forefront as far as a, as a technological tool for adoption and policing was, was largely spurred on by several high-profile events, such as, such as certainly the most apparent and well-known of those events was the, the unfortunate tragic event that occurred with the sh- officer-involved shooting and death of Michael Brown in Ferguson. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the conversation has been around the shooting death of uh, Michael Brown and the Ferguson protests, um, but they're still fairly new, uh, both in terms of actual adoption in police agencies and um, some of the the research around it, right? There's not a lot. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, what is the current state of research in body-worn cameras and a little bit about some of the work that you have done around them? Sure. Um, as you indicated, yeah, body-worn cameras are, are, new, are a new and novel uh, technological tool for law enforcement, but the interesting angle is, you know, in contrast to other technological advancements in policing, such as, uh, um, you know, taser type devices and car dash cameras that, you know, occurred at a slower, a slower adoption rate, body-worn cameras became widely implemented largely out of public, public outcry and response for police accountability, but also for law enforcement acknowledging um, the ability, the, the accountability on their end for having body worn cameras and in, in an effort to hopefully protect their officers as well. But because of that, the research had to quickly try to catch up with the rate of adoption of body worn cameras. So by and large, you know, six, seven years ago, there was essentially no published peer review research at all in, in the academic community on the effectiveness of body worn cameras. Well, bear in mind, there weren't many agencies six, seven years ago that actually had body-worn cameras. I mean, I, I came in pretty much at a, a very interesting time, literally at the forefront of of this evaluation research with my first project that occurred with the Orlando Police Department in body-worn cameras. I started conversations uh, with, uh, with the police department there back in 2013. And at that point in time, I, w- I had been heavily involved in a lot of, you know, research, but I literally had never seen or even really heard of police body-worn cameras uh, and until until we had some discussions, and they were interested in having an evaluation of their body-worn camera program. And I thought it was a opportune time, and they were amenable to the idea of having a randomized controlled trial, an RCT, which is the most rigorous type of research design. Can you actually real quickly talk to us about what an RCT is? Absolutely. Uh, it's it's pretty simple in theory, and it's and it's and I'm sure, the, you know, the, the the lay public would understand these these designs when you relate them more so to drug trials. So essentially, the main the, the main issues when you're trying to compare two groups. So, for instance, in the case one group of officers are wearing body worn cameras versus another group of officers that aren't wearing body worn cameras. This is this this is akin to one group of patients getting a new drug to treat cancer versus another group of patients 
having no drugs or receiving the standard drug uh, that's being administered for treating cancer. So the idea is that you're comparing two different groups that have a different treatment. In this sense, with body-worn cameras, you have camera cops and no camera cops. So the, so the RCT permits the ability to rule out any type of spurious um, or confounding factor in, in terms of officer gender, race, age, years of experience, rank, um, duty assignment. Uh, so you can literally isolate the effect of the drug here in, in this situation, the, cam- the body-worn camera, and its effect on a, on a range of outcomes that would be relevant to wearing a camera versus not wearing a camera. Some of the outcomes that you were sort of mentioning, um, officer behavior, reduced use of force, some of those more uh, transparency and accountability issues for law enforcement seem to be what a lot of people were hoping to get out of body-worn cameras. But on the other hand, I think a lot of departments and a lot of uh, executives and a lot of um, officers were hoping to have it help with some of the claims of abuse Um dispel some of those. Um, can you talk about, in your opinion, what were some of the objectives behind body-worn cameras and have those claims or those hopes behind body-worn cameras been achieved, both from the officer accountability standpoint, but also affecting the behaviors of citizens as well? Yeah, that, that is a very interesting question. And herein lies the complexity when you're talking about the effect of body-worn cameras. The outcomes being from the citizen side, is essentially was solely focused on police accountability. But on the officer's standpoint, it's not just a function of accountability. It's also the idea of reducing officer-related injuries. You know, obviously suspect-related injuries would hopefully be reduced as well. The main outcomes generally are reduction of use of force, reduction in citizen external complaints. And, And by and large, the research has... Focusing on those two outcomes, use of force and external citizen-generated complaints, has largely been consistent and robust in different police departments of different size, large, small, urban, rural, different states, and even in different countries, demonstrating that these body-worn cameras, officers that wear them, have do result in a reduction of use of force relative to officers that don't have the cameras. And the range in terms of how much that reduction is or how large that reduction is in terms of use of force varies. But generally, the, the, the effects are indeed statistically significant. But the idea is that there's a lot of other outcomes that are just now starting to come into the, the realm of police body-worn camera research. And what police departments are starting to realize and researchers are starting to investigate that these cameras, one are not a panacea. It's it's unfair to actually hold these devices responsible for ameliorating all the problems that could result from any police-citizen encounter because relationships are a lot more complex than than just the, the presence or absence of a camera. Now, I mean, I, th- I think that's absolutely true. Can we, Before we get into some of those other things, can we talk about some of those unintended consequences that that you start to that you started to see in the research? Yeah, some of, some of the unintended consequences that have been noted in some of the research has resulted in officers actually having higher incidents of assaults as far as officer-related injuries 
when they wear the cameras versus not. There haven't been a lot, a lot of studies that have examined that specifically or, or noted that effect, but that's been one of the more anomalous uh, findings, which actually obviously is, a, is, a, is something that the officers, from the officer perspective, would not want to occur. But so it, so it really revolves some, you know, contextualizing those results. So, for example, you could argue that, well, now the officers know they have a camera on, so they're going to be less inclined to avoid force at all costs, even in the situation where it puts them at undue risk of injury when they previously wouldn't have, do, have done, have used force because they knew it might have resulted in a complaint or potentially a lawsuit. Now, when they know they're justified in escalating force to an appropriate level, they now have the evidence on the tape to back up their justification. I think some of the other research talked about an increase in contacts or citations and arrests. Can you talk a little bit about some of those uh, changes as yeah, well? I, I definitely b- believe, and obviously it, it's, it shows up in some of the research, that the presence of cameras as it relates to police accountability, once again, it has been shown to impact what we call officer productivity, right? Citations, arrests, those kinds of things. Um, but the reality, that's likely largely stems from the, the effect the cameras have on kind of reining in or in bridling some of the officer's discretion, it, particularly related to more minor forms of uh uh, of police, like citations, for example. So the idea is that, you know, historically, before there was a presence of cameras, if an officer pulled you over for speeding, you know, 8, 10, 12 miles an hour over, could and would oftentimes just issue warnings. Now they know that their behavior is under the microscope and essentially all police citizen encounters, they're likely going to have a reduced level of discretion in terms of just, you know, handling things informally in the field rather than formally citing someone because they don't want to later, you know, be, be accused or even, you know, essentially found guilty, so to speak, of having any kind of bias in their behaviors. Like they're less likely to write tickets for white motorists versus minority motorists. If that can be demonstrated, but they can just pull the, pull the tape and say, well, the last 15 traffic stops you've had, you know, uh, you're more likely to issue a citation than not when the when the driver is a minority. I think there's a uh, an interesting balance that that is being sort of waged here. And on one hand, the the transparency and accountability and um, being able to monitor those things, I think, are are good. Um, and a lot of advocacy groups and communities uh, welcome those uh, those potential tools. But um, on the other hand, you know, there are those unintended consequences. Um, so I guess from that perspective, how do you think um, communities uh, and advocacy groups should think about the impacts of body-worn cameras? And then how do you think um, departments should think about those things as well? Well, I mean, I, th- I think I mean, related to that kind of question is the reality of it is body-worn camera implementation, regardless of the law enforcement agency, regardless of the size, you know, metro, urban, suburban, rural, the, the best-case scenario is prior to implementation of body-worn cameras. Now, bear in mind, some because of the expediency of, of these adoptions, you might not have this scenario in, 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 all, in all police agencies or cities nowadays. But nevertheless, if you can't, 
it's best to engage the citizens and the community stakeholders in the early stages uh, in terms of and have them actually have input um, and certainly review of any body worn camera policy that exists in a department because because then that can show uh, both sides, the officers and the citizens what their level of expectation should be for these cameras. So for, and then what the goal line is, right? So for example, if you say, well, in, in situations where they're interviewing confidential informants, they should turn the cameras off all the time. Or in situations where they're interviewing, uh, you know, special, um, special victims related cases that should be turned off all the time. Then that would demonstrate to the public and to the police, well, there's not going to, they're not going to have an evidentiary value for assisting in sexual assault cases, for example, because they're going to be turned off in those scenarios. So you, so therefore, it's not fair to expect the cameras to improve those improve those case clearance rates if they're not being utilized for those kinds of crimes. So as long as long as the public and the citizens, I mean, the, the police and the citizens, both have have a say in delineating when the cameras should be turned on, when they should be turned off. What should be redacted? What should not be redacted? How much this will be publicly available versus not? How long the data should be retained and stored? Like it's for a sexual assault case or a murder? Maybe indefinitely. But if, if you ask the LAP, LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, to hold all their body-worn camera data on all of their officers for 12 hours shifts times five days times a year, you're, you're talking, you know, billions of of terabytes, you know, or something at, at, at that level, and that's just unwieldy uh, and unfeasible from a, from a storage component. Even if the capacity is there, the sheer cost of that alone uh, for retaining that retaining that uh, video is, is likely not reasonable. Yeah, I mean, I, that's one of the biggest things that that uh, Chief Solaire and I were we're talking about is, you know, it's not just the equipment. It's really the, the storage, uh, takes up so much expenses. Um, and as you, and, and as you mentioned, there's, you know, you, you always have to weigh the costs to the benefits, especially for a, a smaller cities and smaller agencies. Um, so you talked a little bit about the evidentiary, um, process, and I definitely want to get back to that. But before I, before I do, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of on this, right, capturing a lot of that those regular interactions or more interactions. Um, some of the research that uh, Ariel has done around um, po- helping policymakers understand how to increase the effectiveness of body-worn cameras in terms of when to turn on and off their recordings, because I know that from the research, it, that makes a world of difference. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've been involved in reviewing these these uh, policies on body worn camera implementation in terms of when to record versus not, and you know, a number of agencies across the country, and and, uh, and really, what I've generally found and what the research would also support is it is body worn cameras in terms of where the goal line is and what the expected benefits are to both the law enforcement and to the community are largely realized when there's a body-worn camera policy that is fairly broad in terms of the camera should be on when you're an officer who's engaging with a citizen in the community. Because the problem with what I've seen when you have higher levels of specificity with regard to activation, deactivation of the camera, okay, turn it on 
when you're interacting with a citizen where you think it's going to result in a citation or potential arrest versus don't turn it on when you're getting out of your car to go into the local coffee shop to get a coffee or, well, don't turn it on when you have this kind of victim and not that kind of victim. Don't turn it on at this time of the day. This, you know, it gets right. very confusing. Yeah. And at the same point, you don't want your officers, A, to have to learn those 15 times when they need to turn it on versus the 15 times when they need to turn it off because they operate in real time at a high anxiety level, certainly was related to, um, you know, domestic related incidents or they're going mm-hmm. to break up a fight. Take the decision making out of the officer's hand in a sense. That way they're protected and not having to, to, to get in the weeds of all of these highly specific policies. Right. I mean, I've heard I've heard police chiefs and sheriffs that are like, look, once again, I'd rather have 500 hours of this person driving around their beat just you know, doing really, that's it, versus the one time when Citizen A calls the police department and said, Officer Joe assaulted me with, with their baton, you know, and they don't have they don't have that one footage. Now, bear in mind, body-worn camera footage, as, as we talked about earlier, it's not a panacea. They're not drone cameras with a 360-degree view in an aerial shot of the 10 minutes before the officer-involved interaction and the 10 minutes afterwards. That's not what you get. You get a small line of sight, right? And right. same thing related to that. When you have a contrary or complementary video that's being that's being recorded from a cell phone. And so the idea is that there's never going to be a, you know, a segment of a film that's going to be 100% agreed on by everyone, that's what happened. Because it's right. all subjective interpretation to some degree, but the reality of it is having the body-worn camera video to supplement the evidence from bystander videos, suspect videos, witness interviews, will end up in a better representation of the actual true events relative just to a traditional he said versus she said, or the officers, what they wrote in their report, and the suspect cell phone video from from their angle that, that they recorded. Now at least you have perspectives from both sides frequently in terms of video, and you have their written statements and their verbal statements that can all together likely capture more or less what occurred. Um, and then a couple last questions, you know, for the IACP. So we obviously talk a lot to uh, police departments, police executives, but from an academic perspective, um, how do you, um, how can police work with academics better um, to get some more data or to improve some of their uh, programming? Can you talk a little bit about some of the work that, that you've done and, and what you found to be effective in that relationship? Yeah, I mean, this is something I, I definitely see is a, is a changing trend in terms of uh, researcher practitioner partnerships as it relates to law enforcement. Because I think historically, law enforcement has been a little weary to engage with academics because it seems uh, that the results that come out and the implications of the results are generally more of a, of a negative uh, bend. We analyze data, and lo and behold, the officers are using force and they're using it more on these demographics than others. Um, so the idea is that. I do not have a dog in the fight in any outcome. I'm a scientist. When I interact with law enforcement like that, 
And, and I'm like, I'm going to give you guys the best research design mm -hmm. with the most robust analytical techniques that I have uh, and provide you with a final report. They, they appreciate that. And they're also at least, you know, on notice, so to speak, that, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, and the, the data is the data. So that's, that's a level of engagement. But also what I find is it's what's super helpful when you, when you engage with researcher practitioner mm. partnerships is that I'm not using the police for research. That's where a problem is, you know, because then that's the way sometimes they feel like they're being exploited. Right. Like, oh, right. you want to come in here with your lab coat and put a microscope over us. And so I'm like, no, no, I'm like, I'm here. I'm here in a, you know, collaborative relationship where you have outcomes, right? And that you're absolutely interested in and uh, research that you're interested in doing in-house that literally impacts your job in real time, just as I have larger, you know, theoretical or societal type of policy type of uh, questions that I want to investigate. We can use, we can use right. the same data to answer and address all those interests, right? I can do two sets of analyses. When you're engaging with the police department in research versus using the police as research subject. Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like participatory uh, research. Absolutely. And yeah, in, yeah. In, 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 in the body-worn camera studies I've done early on, we were first trying to get volunteers. People were excited about wanting to be, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the project. And the idea that, like, they were a part of some like study that was getting national yeah. attention in the media, right? right. For, for good. <laughs> Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for being on the pod. It was a pleasure talking with you. And um, I look forward to speaking with you again sometime in the future. Thank you. I appreciate the time so much. I want to thank Dr. Jennings and Chief Solaire again for their time and expertise. I also want to thank you for listening. The ICP has a number of available resources on this topic, including our policy guides and considerations and our technology policy framework. Feel free to email us with any questions or comments at discoverpolicing at theiacp.org. For this episode, I had research and production help from Elon Lee. Thank you to the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS office for their support on this episode. Please see the show notes to learn more about the COPS office and follow their work. This project was supported in whole or in part by Cooperative Agreement Number 2017-CK-WXK-004, awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services. And as always, the opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific individuals, agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the speakers, IACP, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.